A lot of people, uh, myself included, believe in diversity, believe in inclusion, believe in equity. Like there is no doubt those are sincere beliefs. Those beliefs, however, do not in any way change systems or structures or biases. All they do is just sit as beliefs. This is Dolly Chug, an NYU professor and author of The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Now, I'm guessing that every person listening to this podcast right now thinks of themselves as a good person someone who's committed to justice and inclusivity, and that you probably agree that society would be a happier place if all people were treated equally, no matter what their sexual, gender, racial, religious, or ethnic identity. But lots of us fail to act on these feelings, not because we're bad people, but often because we're not sure how. I'm risk averse, and I always want to say the right thing, and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, I don't love conflict, like all these things will pull me into doing less, not more to go from believing something to building something, to go from the belief to the action. We have to build some skills. We need some tools. If we really want our societies to be happier, we need to actively counter the bigotry and violence that affects so many identities on a near daily basis. But changing the deep-seated structures that cause all this injustice is gonna take an all-hands-on-deck approach. I'm Dr. Laurie Santos, and you're listening to the Happiness Lab Shortcast. In this episode, you'll learn why it can be hard for non-marginalized people to confront bigotry and injustice head-on, even when they truly want to, and how striving to be good-ish, not perfect, is the key to becoming a better ally. Our lying minds make it super hard to see all the structural inequalities around us, especially if we're lucky enough not to experience that oppression directly. There's even work suggesting that our worries about seeming prejudiced take up a lot of mental bandwidth. My colleague at Yale, Jennifer Richeson, and Princeton psychologist Nicole Shelton had white subjects chat about a controversial issue with either a white or black stranger. Afterwards, participants did a tough attentional task known as the Stroop Test, in which you read the names of colors as quickly as you can, despite the words being printed in the wrong colored font. It's actually pretty hard to read B-L-U-E when it's printed in yellow. But Richeson and Shelton found that white subjects did significantly worse on that Stroop test after talking to a Black person. The researchers concluded that subjects left these interracial interactions feeling more cognitively and emotionally drained than if they'd chatted with someone of the same race. And later work from Richeson's lab shows that white subjects have an even more pronounced performance dip when they're reminded to try and not seem racist during the interaction. Our minds go through a whole host of mental gymnastics, when our self-image as a decent person is threatened. It's what psychologists call motivated reasoning. When we think about all the unseen gifts we get just from existing as a non-marginalized person, when we realize that all the bad stuff in our life would probably be worse if we weren't white or straight or cisgendered or able-bodied or middle-class, that can make us feel kind of bad, like we got some benefit that wasn't really fair, even if we didn't intend to. Rather than experience all this discomfort, Our minds try to cook the facts. We search our memory banks for the kinds of hardships that might make our own lives look less easy and therefore less privileged relative to a marginalized person. Despite writing an entire book on fighting injustice, Dolly is the first to admit that it's easy to fall under the sway of motivated reasoning. Rationally, Dolly knows that she's had a whole host of life experiences that other people weren't lucky enough to have. When I say I have privilege, it's not that I haven't worked super hard 
four things. It's not that I haven't had some really serious challenges in my life. And yet, if someone says to me, like, you know, you just went to fancy schools, well, well, hold on, you know, I can feel my blood boiling in that moment. That That is an example of what it looks like to deny privilege. But Dolly has found that there is a way to stop all the mental gymnastics that lead decent people down this not-so-good path. The solution involves dropping the fiction that we're good people in the first place. I've been on this campaign to get people to let go of being a good person and strive instead to be a goodish person. Someone who never assumes they're good. It's that I'm always looking for ways in which I could learn or what, where my blind spots are or where I could notice something I might have missed or a different perspective. So what might it look like in practice to be good-ish? Hi, welcome. Welcome along, listeners. Uh, <laughs> what's funny? I just think that's a really weird thing to say. It's kind of creepy. What's creepy about it? Um, welcome, listeners. James Barr and Dan Hudson are the duo behind the award-winning LGBTQ podcast, A Gay and a Non-Gay. Before its launch in 2015, most of James's friends were women or gay men. Dan, who as the show's title suggests, is a non-gay, wasn't the sort of person that James usually hung out with. Dan loves metal music, and he can be quite angry sometimes. He's got a beard. Not that that's, you know, not gay, but I think I'm quite femme, and Dan's very mask. Because of their different identities and experiences, working together on the podcast meant bridging a whole host of tricky issues. Part of the exhaustion comes from the fact that their podcast doesn't shy away from controversial topics. Most of their episodes are not safe for work because no aspect of James's gay sex life is off limits. Dan's often in the position of asking the clueless question that many straight people have. Answering what a douche was was pretty awkward. So Dan and I have spent a long time talking about the ins and outs of, uh, of anal cleaning and how that works. And also Dan just being so confused by the entire thing. Like, you do what? Their shared laughter has given them the trust needed to talk about even more sensitive topics. Things like HIV, the unique mental health challenges faced by the LGBTQ community, and the injustice and violence against queer people that straight cisgender people often don't see. Since co-hosting this podcast, Dan's had to navigate a lot of the moral identity threat that comes from recognizing his non-gay privilege. But unlike other straight people, Dan's had to deal with all that discomfort with thousands of people listening. Dan's been amazing. He's, he's taken a lot of that on board. And maybe, and I think you've helped me just realize this now, maybe the way Dan is a good ally is because he's awkward. He's awkward about asking these questions. He's awkward about learning and speaking up for gay people. He feels awkward. And maybe as an ally for any marginalized community, you're meant to just feel a bit awkward. James is onto something important here because the science suggests that the path to becoming a better ally often involves embracing just that awkwardness. It comes from accepting that you're probably going to screw up. As psychologist Dolly Chug explains, it's not a matter of if a non-marginalized person is going to do or say something dumb, but when. We are going to screw up. Period. We are. And when we mess up, we need to immediately own the harm we've caused. First of all, I am sorry. It's not, I am sorry if you were offended. Sorry if I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry if you took it that way. Those are all not what we want to say. It is, I am sorry, I have done harm, I have messed up, I am going to do better, I am going to learn. It's obvious that making mistakes is necessary for learning almost anything in life. But we're often super resistant to believing that we can improve, 
something that renowned Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck has called having a fixed mindset. Dolly thinks this rigid fixed mindset thinking is even more pronounced in cases that involve our moral identities. I'm a good person or I'm not. There's no work in progress in there. And what we know from the mindset research is that when you're in a fixed mindset and you make a mistake, your brain activation actually goes down. You actually withdraw attention from the mistake. Why? Because there's no point in looking at mistake. You're fixed. You're not going to grow. To become better allies, we all need to switch to a different mindset. The growth mindset is the one where, of course, we still care deeply about doing the right thing and being a good person, but we acknowledge that it's going to take lots of work and mistakes to get there. People with a growth mindset are willing to embrace harder and harder learning challenges. They even devote more neural resources to paying attention to their mistakes. Why? Because a mistake means I have an opportunity to get better. I'm mortified, but I can get better. The idea is to own it, to say it, and to act on it. Carol Dweck, along with her Stanford colleague, Jamil Zaki, have shown that our mindsets can have a significant impact on how we approach hard identity challenges. They found that white participants with a growth mindset spent more time actually listening to a Black person describe personal challenges than white subjects with a fixed mindset. The good news is that it's pretty easy to develop a growth mindset. It can be as easy as reminding yourself that you can change with a simple three-letter word, yet. As in, I'm not a good person yet, but I can be, if I put in some work. The simple act of reminding ourselves we can change can have a huge effect on our willingness to engage with tough racial situations, own our own mistakes when they inevitably come up, and put in the work to make amends and do better in the future. Putting in all this hard work is worth it in the end, not just for fixing society, but also for our own personal sense of meaning and well-being. As we discuss so often in the Happiness Lab, Doing good for others makes us feel good, often in profound and long-lasting ways we don't even realize. Doing good for the world also provides us with greater emotional resilience. If we want to live in a society that's safe and fair for all people, then each and every one of us needs to embrace a bit more discomfort. Marginalized groups, of course, don't really have a choice about this. They're forced to be uncomfortable all the time. But the research shows that individuals from non-marginalized identities need to embrace their fair share, too, if we're ever going to build the kind of world we want to live in. So if you're serious about becoming a better ally to people who lack your own particular forms of privilege, make sure your fear of screwing up doesn't paralyze you from taking any action at all. You might not always get things perfectly right, but you can always choose to move in the direction of growth. And you should, because the world can really use your help. And if you enjoyed the shortcast of The Happiness Lab, you might like the episode, Mistakenly Seeking Solitude. Feelings of loneliness and isolation are on the rise worldwide, but there are research-backed strategies we can use to stay connected. The musician David Byrne explains how he puts these strategies into practice in his own life. Happiness.